trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This could be a very interesting day. And I say that uh, based on just some current events that are going on. Over the weekend, a fairly sizable bank, I think it's one of the top 20, top 25 banks in America, failed. And that was, uh, I believe, on Friday. Saturday, there were uh, numerous images of people standing outside uh, in lines, in the rain, in California, outside these banks waiting to get their money. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to plant the seed of fear of, uh, therefore, we should all be running around with our arms in the air and screaming, but... Uh, I don't know about you. I just I never I never feel quite settled when it's like, whoa, that's that's a lot of people standing outside the bank. Kind of points to a crisis of confidence, and uh, and that's given all the other stuff that's going on. You know, the push towards World War Three, and you know, there's still lingering effects from all the COVID lockdown tyranny and so forth. We could be seeing some pretty pretty interesting dominoes start to fall, especially within the financial markets. So my goal today is not to scare you, but uh, I am going to be taking a pretty hard look at what uh, what appears to be some unpleasant reality. And frankly, I think uh, every one of us is going to, to feel the pinch to some degree. Now, I you know, we have to we have to distinguish between those things over which we have control and those that we don't. This is one of those situations where even the people who are saying, oh, no, no, don't you worry, we're going to fix this. Why? I think the president and the the head of the Federal Reserve has stepped up. Well, we're going to take care of this. We're going to we're going to take care of it. They can't. I think that uh, things have picked up enough momentum that really at this point nobody is in control. And what we're going to see play out is uh, is probably going to be kind of messy. It's going to test us in many ways. And I don't I, again I don't tell you that to to scare you, but I, I want to be very upfront. We have tough times on our doorstep. In fact, they're knocking. Who's going to answer the door? But that does not mean that, uh, therefore, we are worthless and, you know, our lives should just be suffering until the bitter end. We're also being handed an opportunity to be better people than we were yesterday. And the only way that you get that kind of improvement, the only kind you, the only way you encounter that kind of refinement is to go through difficulty. Now, look, you probably are way ahead of me on this, but uh, I'm not ashamed to tell you. For, for most of my life, I was like, no, no, no. The point is avoid difficulty as much as you can, and that's what makes for a good life. Okay, well, I was slow to realize that that's not how things often work out, and frankly, I've never been happier than on the other side of difficult times when I just simply acknowledged, okay, this is what it is. There is a difficult or painful time straight in front of me, but uh, with my jaw, <clears throat> with my you know jaw squared and my chin up, I go ahead and I march resolutely right into and through the difficulty, realizing that yes, this sucks, but the only way to deal with it is to go through it, not around it, not over it, not under it, just through it. And it's always a season, and I guess that's the important thing to remember. 
If this leads to some pretty long-term hardship, it's still just a season. It's not the way things will always be. But given the opportunity, we can be better people on the other side of it. At least we'll have great clarification of what really matters versus what doesn't. Okay. I See, I'm depressing myself. So let me move on here. Let's talk about what actually happened. You've heard about the collapse or the, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. But what does it mean? Well... Jeffrey Tucker has been one of my great sources to go to when I, I just want somebody explain this to me in a way that, that can make sense that even I can understand it. Jeffrey is a brilliant man. He has a great gift for boiling it down to, look, here are the essentials of what we need to, to understand about this and how it affects us. He says, thus far in this three-year fiasco of mismanagement and corruption, we've avoided financial crisis. That's for specific reasons. We just had not traveled there in the trajectory of the inevitable. Now, are we there yet? His answer is maybe. In any case, the speed of change is accelerating. All that awaits is to observe the extent of the contagion. So the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB, $212 billion in assets until, until only recently, is a huge mess and a possible foreshadowing. Its fixed-rate bond holdings declined rapidly in market valuation due to changed market conditions. Its portfolio crashed further due to a depositor run. And it all happened in less than a few days. So it's an extension of the Fed policy to curb inflation, reversing a 13-year zero-rate policy. Now, this, of course, pushed up rates in the middle and right side of the yield curve, devaluing existing bond holdings locked into older rate patterns. Investors noticed, then depositors noticed too. The high-flying institution that specialized in providing liquidity in industries that have lost their luster suddenly found itself very vulnerable. You know which industries he's talking about, right? Yeah, Silicon Valley, mm-hmm, big tech. In addition, the bank was exposed with a portfolio of collateralized mortgage obligations and mortgage-backed securities. But with rates rising, those are coming under stress, too, as high leverage in housing and real estate become untenable amidst falling valuations. So borrowers, says Jeffrey Tucker, are finding themselves underwater, and that in turn adds to stress on the lenders. And he asks, where did SVB and the entire banking industry get the funds to bulk up their portfolios with debt holdings? Yeah, you guessed it, stimulus payments. Billions flooded in. It had to be parked somewhere, making some return. At the time, it seemed like a good deal until Fed policy changed. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says a house of cards comes to mind. Maybe a better metaphor is a game of billiards in which every move introduces a cascade of new issues. Lockdowns prompted immense government spending, which produced debt that was quickly monetized and eventually caused inflation, prompting the Fed to reverse course with the largest, fastest rate increases in history. This destabilized or restabilized production structures away from the right side of the yield curve toward the left, shifting capital in search of a return in search of return to the consumer goods sector. Well, now labor has begun to follow, thus creating a surplus of resources in information tech and a shortage in retails. He says it was always naive to think that this shift would take place without touching the, the banking institutions that shoveled leverage in the direction of industries that thrived during lockdowns but are cutting back massively now. These banks are exposed in speculative ventures from which capital is fleeing. 
Their asset portfolios were tied, as usual, to a continuation of the status quo that stopped continuing, so investors and depositors are fleeing to safety. Now, there's also an angle here about uh, the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion model that many of these, uh, or ESG models too, that, that these companies are following. And apparently this bank was very woke and much more focused on signaling that wokeness than it was on remaining, you know, in, in good shape financially. Just kind of an interesting side note. So could the feds have anticipated this? Jeffrey Tucker says probably, but what choice did it have? Did it have? It's talking about the Fed, actually, Federal Reserve. Again, this entire mess traces to the first lockdowns and second to uh, Ben Bernanke's preposterous policies as the Fed chair back in 2008. He imagined that he would fix a financial crisis by abolishing a natural force like interest rates on bonds. Then he pulled a fancy trick of keeping his quantitative easing off the streets by having the Fed pay more for deposits than the same money could earn in markets. So what was the problem? Well, the problem is capital is never still. It's always on the hunt for return. And it founded in big tech and internet media, bolstered by seemingly infinite resources for advertising and hiring. And this further caused an absolute gutting of normal rates of saving, simply because there was no money in it. And the situation persisted for a good 13 years. So Jerome Powell took over the Fed with the determination to put an end to this nonsense, and he hoped for a soft landing, but... Then came the pandemic lockdowns, and he was called upon to provide funding for the idiocy of a panicked Congress that spent many trillions fast as possible, which only perpetuated lockdowns. Now, of course, everything seemed fine for a while, as it always does, but by January 21st, the bill came due in the form of roaring price inflation. By January of 2021, that is. The Fed had to reverse course dramatically, starting at zero. It had to get federal funds rates equal to, uh, to rather equal or exceed price increases. In other words, the terminal rate. So it's not there yet. It has no choice but to barrel ahead. And those rate increases in the meantime are drawing capital out of the industries that thrived during the lockdown period. Back to retail, back to consumer goods. But meanwhile, the yield curve has responded as it must from 30 days to 30 years, every bond offering was repriced, causing institutions holding old bonds to look like chumps. That's where Silicon Valley Bank found itself with, with a suddenly declining market valuation. We'll come back to Jeffrey Tucker's explanation. There's a lot of technical terms there, but I think that makes a lot of sense. We'll talk about it in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to my sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, Borelli.com, and TMCPNation.com. That is the Modern Conservative Podcast Nation. My friend John Harvey. I've got these links in my show notes, which you'll find at TheBrianHydeShow.com. Let's get back to this article from Jeffrey Tucker about uh, the collapse of of the Silicon Valley Bank portends real dangers just ahead. He says the coup de grace was depositor behavior. In search for safety, cash has found the return on short-term treasuries far more attractive than speculative ventures. 
So the flight to safety doomed the bank and its many partners in the financial industry. It's a huge wake-up call for the whole of markets. No one in the industry is sitting comfortably today. And he says, my concern here is that people will look at all these disasters in isolation. But the point is, they're not isolated. They trace to the catastrophic decision in 2020 to lock down and fund those policies with money that did not exist until it was created. That decision doomed the Fed's plans to unravel its previous stupid policies and set us on the course toward calamity. So he says, at this point, I'm sorry to report, no one is in a position to stop anything. Markets can be ferocious, ferocious rather, under these conditions. Markets are not all-knowing, but once they lose trust, there is no stopping the stampede of incredulity. There is no one at the Fed who can stop it, and no wise managers at the top who can patch things up. Take note of the collapse of bank stocks just hours after regulators took over SVB. He says, my friends, we could be in for a wild ride. Stay safe. So I'm sorry, there's, there's not a lot of good news there, but I think there's a fair voice of warning and at least some, some pretty good detail on understanding how did we actually get here. And I think his, his most important point is don't think this is just an isolated thing. It all connects. So when someone steps in and the people who caused a lot of these problems, like lockdowns and so forth, step forward and say, never mind now, don't you worry, we're here to save the day. You might want to, I want to think twice before you give them your allegiance. By the way, there's also an article I'm going to include in today's show notes. This is from Alexander Bruce from Forbidden Knowledge TV. The banking collapse has begun. And it covers a number of things. I'll just touch on a couple of these quickly. It's a fairly short video. But this last week, Tucker Carlson exposed the masses to the January 6th hoax. Also, in the Proud Boys trial, leaked chat logs from FBI Special Agent Nicole Miller realized that she was ordered by her boss to destroy 338 items of evidence. Once that news broke a few days ago, the trial was halted. Gee, I wonder why. The FBI destroying evidence? Wah! They're supposed to be, you know, people we can trust, right? Also, the investigation, sorry, the investigation into Twitter has revealed that moderators were instructed to censor true posts which could fuel vaccine hesitancy. Do you understand what that means? In other words, if it was factually correct, but uh, people knowing it might be a little more hesitant to go get vaxxed up after reading it, we need to censor this. That seem right to you? Also, former CDC head Robert Redfield has testified that the National Institute of Health was conducting gain-of-function research at the Wuhan lab in China. I think Dr. Fauci actually made some comment last week about, well, that flu, uh, that flu vaccine that you had, that's a product of gain-of-function research. So we're coming full circle from, wow, well, we never did gain-of-function. We never funded gain-of-function. Of course we did. Of course we funded it. That's the only thing we can do is do gain-of-function. Stinking liars. <laughs> Lying liars and the lies they tell. Anyway, politically, the tide is turning. <clears throat> there are people all over the world rejecting the New World Order. Sweden, the farmers there, have, uh, have been up in arms here of late. Don't see a lot on the news about this. And uh, also, the Central Bank of Nigeria launched their CBDC just a little over a year ago. But the people rejected it. So early this year, Nigerian banks emptied the ATM machines, closed their doors. That resulted in angry protests. People attacked ATMs. They blocked roads in multiple cities. 
The Bank of Lebanon apparently has failed. The Lebanese pound has fallen to an all-time low of $80,000 against the U.S. dollar. People have taken to the streets. Banks have been set on fire. The rise in Fed rates has officially killed America's biggest lender, Silicon Valley Bank. The FDIC shutters Silicon Valley Bank. $152 billion of uninsured deposits are destroyed. Ooh, that's smarts. The rise of Fed rates killed Silvergate Capital. Several regional bank stocks have plummeted as a result of the Silicon Valley Bank and the Federal Reserve's rate hikes. The housing market is collapsing as well. The majority of commercial real estate loans are lent by small banks. Massive short bets are now happening in the commercial real estate market. And the Federal Reserve Bank is taking down the housing market along with all the regional banks, leaving only its vassals, meaning the major commercial banks, who will be distributing CBDCs as a solution. The financial experts are now recommending that people have food, gold and silver, and cash in their possession. So again, this is, this is not about, hey, you should probably go panic right now. But the things we've been talking about here for, for months, for years, on this program and others like it, be as self-sufficient as you can. Don't have your eggs all in one basket. I've especially been a believer of if you can't put your hands on it, it's not really your money. Now, that doesn't mean that I've totally, you know, removed myself from the banking system because, frankly, electronic banking does make things easier in many ways. But I long ago came to the conclusion that, uh, you know, I only keep as much money in the bank as I can reasonably afford to walk away from. Truth be told, I can't afford to walk away from any of it, right? But uh, <clears throat> but I, I don't keep everything sitting in the bank. And, and no disrespect, you know, to Wells Fargo or to my, my credit union. Um, it's just the, the realization, and especially about a year ago, as the, the people who were participating in the Canadian trucker convoy, the Freedom Convoy, as they started to see their bank accounts frozen, as they started to see uh, their, their money confiscated, you know, appropriated in the name of, well, you guys are doing dangerous patriotic things, and therefore your government has a right to step in and freeze your accounts. I mean, that was a huge warning. And in the meantime, all along, we should have been working on food storage, working on water, medical self-sufficiency as much as possible. And and I'm going to throw one more thing out there, and this is Again, this is not to tell anybody that we're ready to switch into panic mode, but just if you have not built relationships, partnerships with the people around you, you really need to get on that because this is the kind of thing that uh, hard times are going to require teamwork. And, And we're talking voluntary teamwork that people willingly say, I will step up and I will help my neighbor because, you know, I recognize that I too need that help. But if you, if you put it off, put it off, or you try to just be, you know, the lone wolf out there, it's, it's going to be too late at some point. What a crazy time. You know, and this is, this is in addition to even, even if, if things weren't as unsettled financially or politically or geopolitically, there's still a lot of stuff going on in life that uh, is going to be challenging. you got kids that have problems to be dealt with and, you know, aging parents and, you know, all the, just all the day-to-day stuff that goes on. Well, I'm definitely, uh, definitely feeling the pressure as I'm sure a lot of people are. 
But above all, I want to assure you, look, you're not nuts for believing in, in the foundational truths that, that got you to this point. My only advice is don't be so rigid, you know, in the way things ought to be or the way that I want things to be. Don't be so rigid that you snap off. You've got to be a little bit flexible. And, and I think we're going to all have to learn to, to bend a little bit this way and that way to navigate whatever is, is coming at us headlong at, you know, 120 miles an hour. I'm not saying this ironically, but it's exciting times, you know, to, to put it mildly. All right, we have some other stuff to talk about that doesn't involve bank collapses or runs on banks. We'll get to that in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Among the many resources for wrong thinkers that I count on on a daily basis as I'm trying to get a lay of the land and see what uh, what's what out there, I love to visit the American Institute for Economic Research. Very straightforward. Sometimes, sometimes the topics are um, a bit deep for me. I'm a simple man after all. But... I really appreciate their take on so many different topics. Robert E. Wright has a new essay out on Fauciism's New Deal origins. And I had forgotten, I guess with all the other stuff that's been going on, I'd forgotten the latest batch of Fauci files was supposed to have been released on Twitter back in January. But apparently it's gone AWOL. Robert says it's, it's gone down the, uh, the memory hole. And he asks, could it be because they too clearly reveal the face of Fauciism, which he means a type of administrative dictatorship exemplified by Anthony Fauci's nearly four-decade reign over the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases? Now, Fauciism combines control over financial resources and information with a carefully cultivated uh, cult of personality. Fauci's power grab went unnoticed for so long because the stakes seemed low. Just $400,000 a year in salary and the power to direct about $6 billion a year in research funding. But we've since learned that Fauci and his wife, who coincidentally was the chief bioethicist at the National Institutes of Health, earned almost $1.8 million in 2020 from their salaries, investment gains, and patent royalties. Their combined net worth was north of $10 million then and is likely much higher now. The interest from that nest egg, plus a $350,000 pension and ongoing royalty payments, will ensure Fauci a million-dollar-a-year retirement income. The personality cult Fauci built, with the help of progressive legacy media and social media censorship, was so strong that his admirers' public adulation of him waxed even after public exposure of his multiple lies, logical inconsistencies, and megalomaniacal claims to represent science. Robert E. Wright says most impressive of all, though, was the policy power that Fauci was able to wield through his control of NIAID funding. Only a few brave, retired, or privately funded scientists dared to question even his most strident pronouncements regarding COVID-19 because public criticism of Fauci would likely have meant getting their funding cut which is career suicide for most research scientists. 
So Americans long remained in the dark about crucial COVID facts like infection fatality rates, the efficacy of various therapies, and mask and vaccine safety and effectiveness. The only other major source of pushback came from those with sufficient intellectual chops to understand what was occurring, but who were not beholden to Fauci and financing. Fauci knew the lockdown and masking policies he pushed were indefensible, so he reached out to other parts of the government to throttle the message of those questioning lockdowns, including the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration and economists and policy analysts like Phil Magnus associated with AIER, the Independent Institute, and a few other nonprofits. The Fauci files promised to reveal the extent of his throttling campaign. Now that Fauci has officially retired, it's tempting to think that America's harrowing brush with Fauciism is over. But Robert Wright says, unfortunately, the administrative overreach at the heart of Fauciism has long been endemic in America's national government. The disease struck hard during the New Deal, the radical response of the administration of President Franklin D. Roosevelt to the Great Depression. The first hundred days, the launch of the New Deal started 90 years ago this week. AIER formed that same year, 1933, to combat the New Deal, which instituted a broad series of costly, nation-changing reforms in the name of economic security. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, the NIH, and NIAID were largely post-war creations, but they were all modeled after New Deal-era bureaucracies like the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the National Recovery Administration. So in each case, Congress delegated broad powers to the executive branch to achieve some general goal or goals. The executive branch then established an agency, commission, corporation, or department, and empowered it to meet its general goals through the imposition of rules that soon came to have the force of law. Now, courts at first tried to adjudicate disputes arising under administrative rules and managed to strike some of them down. But James M. Landis, a new dealer, erstwhile bureaucrat and dean of Harvard's law school, argued that it was perfectly fine for unelected administrators to make crucial decisions about Americans' lives, liberty, and property based on rules that administrators created and adjudicated themselves. Any problems arising from giving administrators so much discretion could be solved, Landis wrote in his 1938 book, The Administrative Process, simply by improving administrative procedures. Such a vast delegation of power was perfectly democratic because Congress and the President had agreed upon the law creating the bureaucracy and also agreed upon its continued funding. Boy, does that sound familiar. Robert E. Wright says lawmakers, apologists from the administrative state, suggested would surely shut down a rogue agency that, say, routinely bent laws against animal cruelty or flouted concerns over gain-of-function research. Except Fauci and other bureaucrats like those at the Environmental Protection Agency realized somewhere along the line that the U.S. government has grown too vast to be adequately monitored by Congress or by 330 million people with their own pressing problems. The administrators can aggrandize or enrich themselves pretty much as they see fit especially during a putative emergency. So he concludes, although federal agencies and their leaders may occasionally get a slap on the wrist, real checks against the arbitrary use of their power appear lacking. Robert E. Wright says many Americans want to drain the swamp, 
and need to find a way to do so before the swamp drains them of the remnants of their individual autonomy and bank accounts. I really, uh, I appreciate uh, Robert's take on this and agree with him. You know, this, this, this is why you don't let government off its leash because it has a tendency to just keep on running and, and getting more bold about uh, where it's willing to go and less willing to observe the, the proper limits on its power. It's not a Democrat versus Republican thing. It's a state versus the people thing. And right now, we have allowed an apparatus to be built from the federal level on down where the state, whatever you know, whatever level you're talking, largely is coming to view you and I, the citizenry, as a threat. Now, the, the reason that seems so outrageous is because what was the purpose that government was invented in the first place? If you're really curious, you can always go back to the Declaration of Independence in which the, the outline of what the proper role of government is laid out for a candid world, you know, to, to see. They, they wanted to put it out there. Why are we separating ourselves from Great Britain? Because the government is no longer doing what government is supposed to do, and that is protecting our God-given rights. And they said when it becomes necessary in the course of human events that uh, something like this comes up, we not only have a duty, but we have a right to either abolish or replace that unresponsive government. That's a hard sell, though, for people who've outsourced pretty much everything. Well, I just want to get down to Starbucks and get my coffee and get on my way and not have to worry about this kind of stuff. But when you don't worry about it, when you outsource it to professional politicians, huh, what a surprise. Suddenly there's, there's some uh, hanky-panky going on. I guess it just shows that, uh, you know, part of the price of citizenry means you've got to be involved. And that doesn't mean that politics and consumes every spare moment of your time. But it means that you do not trust your natural rights, the things that limit government power over you. You don't trust those to a politician. And you certainly don't allow politicians to start stripping away at those limits on their power. I think history is a pretty strong teacher of what happens when people do that enough. And right now it feels like we're, we're in such a curious place because so many of the lies and so many of the, the schemes that have been uh, perpetrated to try to convince us to you know, run into the arms of these, these people who believe that anything not under the control of the state is by definition out of control. All these stories are starting to fall apart. People are starting to recognize, hey, this was never in my interest. Why am I going along with it? And they're starting to consider withdrawing their consent because, after all, legitimate government depends upon the consent of the governed. It's not a matter of, uh, well, you came on my playground, so therefore you agreed to me beating you up every day. Although there are those who would like to portray it as such. I can't help but feel a little bit of uh, anticipation for whatever it is that's going to come next. And I don't say that with the idea that it's going to come so easily and it's going to land on us like a butterfly and everybody's just going to ooh and ah. No, I think there's some pretty serious work ahead of us. And who knows, there might even be a little bit of suffering to get to what comes next. But as far as the corrupted, nasty, rotting power structure that currently is asserting its dominance over our lives, 
I'm not going to be one person who sheds a tear when when it comes tumbling down. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I got a couple of positive notes on which to end this program today and hopefully give you some encouragement. A little stout hearts and stiff upper lips and all that. Pip, pip, cheerio as, uh, as we move forward into the unknown. You know, with all the carnage that arose during the COVID lockdowns, there were some pretty clear messages and lessons that have, have emerged. And I love this article from John Tamney courtesy of the Brownstone Institute. Its title, Regardless of Virus Origins, Freedom is the Answer. He says, as seemingly everyone who's been following the political tragedy that was and is the coronavirus well knows, the Department of Energy now confirms with a low level of confidence that the virus was inadvertently leaked from a lab in China. Unsurprising and perhaps understandably, this conclusion has many gloating. Figure that Anthony Fauci and other despicable attention-seeking authoritarians not too long ago dismissed the very notion of a lab leak as the stuff of mouth-breathing conspiracy theorists. Fauci et al. deserve our immense scorn, period. But David Tamney says at the same time, this focus on the origins of the virus is a total distraction that politicians, scientists, and doctors, including Fauci, have to be loving. So he says, please read on, but first, let's travel back in time a bit. In doing so, let's not forget that politicians and bureaucrats associated with government were the very people who panicked and demanded that Americans have their freedom and work taken from them in 2020 as a virus mitigation strategy. So those gloating might keep this in mind as they revel in the Energy Department's soft conclusion. In other words, who seriously cares what the salary men and women at the DOE think? What a mistake to embrace the thinking of self-proclaimed experts when their conclusions match what some in the anti-lockdown community think. From there, the virus's origins really don't matter. Lest the crowd that has long been properly anti-lockdown forgets, pathogens are as old as mankind is. Since they are, the accenting of where they come from is to completely miss the point. Instead, the always and everywhere expressed view should be that reality should not be used by the political expert and medical classes as a pretext for taking our freedom. Freedom is precious and authoritarians can't have it regardless of a pathogen's origin or its presumed lethality. Indeed, while even the New York Times reported with great consistency in 2020 that the virus in a death sense was most associated with very sick, very old people in nursing homes, the accent on the previous truth by the anti-lockdown crowd similarly missed the point and it missed the point dangerously. That is so because a focus on statistics or anecdote as a reason for not locking us down is to suggest that if the coronavirus or some future pathogen were truly lethal, politicians would have the right to lock us down. I like his answer. He says, no thanks, which is once again why this focus on what the New York Times acknowledged way back when What the CDC routinely acknowledged about those dying with the virus, remember, comorbidity since 2020, and what the DOE softly concludes right now is such a mistaken way to fight the battle. It's because it puts a low price, such a low price tag on freedom. Almost as bad, he says it hands the argument to those who have a need to trample on the rights of others. 
Now he says, think about it. As I argued in my 2021 book, When Politicians Panicked, the more lethal any virus is, the more that political action is wholly superfluous. If a virus is killing indiscriminately, who among us seriously needs to be forced to be careful? Okay, but what if we don't know the lethality of a spreading virus? Well, freedom is the answer once again. It's precisely when fear is greatest and knowledge is least evident that freedom becomes most crucial. Indeed, free people do more than produce the economic resources that scientists and doctors require to come up with cures for what might be harmful or lethal. Equally important, free people produce information. By making different choices amid a spreading virus, free people teach us what behavior is most associated with sickness, death, or neither. In other words, lockdowns don't protect us. Rather, they threaten our health by concealing essential information. He says, please think about this with what happened in 2020, top of mind. By locking us down, politicians and experts didn't just wreck businesses, jobs, and living as we knew it up until then. They also blinded us to how to best deal with the spreading virus that they claimed was a huge threat to us. In that case, thank goodness the virus wasn't remotely lethal for the vast majority of us. Still, the lockdowns were tragic. That they correlated with increasing depression, alcoholism, job loss, business failure, and reduced classroom learning is a known and horrid quality, quantity rather. Worse, Anna's logic would dictate all this force logically didn't improve our well-being or save lives. But his point is that taking a freedom never does. In which case, let's not compound the errors of the past by focusing on the origin of the virus leak. Once again, viruses are a part of life, thus making origin irrelevant. Much worse, this focus on what's irrelevant is exactly what politicians and experts want us to be focused on. If we waste time worrying about the where, we forget what the political and expert class did to us not too long ago. In short, the lockdowns were the true tragedy of 2020 and beyond, not something that's as old as mankind. So John Tamney says, please, let's not change the subject from what really mattered then and matters now. He's got a point. And I apologize for uh, getting his name wrong at least once in there. But I'll have a link to John Tamney's article in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Okay, one final note. This is a kind of a pep talk from J.B. Shirk. Really have come to enjoy his articles. I, I feel like this guy is a kindred spirit in that uh, he is looking at how do we maintain our freedoms without losing our principles. So this is titled, Liberating Ourselves from Dystopia. He says, most Americans grasp how the U.S. government actually works. Large corporate interests pay off politicians and bureaucrats to, to advance their financial interests. In return, those politicians and bureaucrats are responsible for creating new problems for the American people that can be exploited to justify spending huge sums of money, the bulk of which fall into the laps of the large corporate interests. So the pharmaceutical interest industry, for instance, for instance, rather, would love for lawmakers to mandate that Americans purchase and use their products in perpetuity. Big Pharma then pays hospitals, research scientists, and medical doctors to push its products. It privately funds health, public health agencies while rewarding ostensibly objective bureaucrats with research grants and promises of future lucrative employment. And through its lobbying arms, Big Pharma fills the campaign coffers and family foundations of elected officials and works hand-in-hand with lawmakers 
to craft legislation that simultaneously expands Big Pharma's profits and lawmakers' personal stock for f- portfolios. Lawmakers who refuse to play this corrupt game end up being the electoral targets of all those extra dollars in industry profits, and the stick-or-carrot system effectively works to eliminate ethical politicians while elevating criminals. It's plain old bribery and extortion, and it is how Washington, D.C. operates. Now, he says, notice that for this system to thrive, industry and government agents must continue to create new crises for the American people. Far from being motivated to build a healthy future where humans are free from disease, Big Pharma has an interest, incentive rather, to invest in viral gain-of-function research or other dangerous experimental work that might inadvertently leak from a lab and unleash the next big pandemic. His point is a healthy world is profitless. Likewise, defense industry interests have every incentive to see mortal threats throughout the globe and no incentive to sue for peace. Only endless war can sustain regular investment growth. If politicians and bureaucrats were just slightly less immoral than they really are, then perhaps they could agree to just pay off big pharma and big defense with big bags of printed bills rather than force their products on new victims around the world. But J.B. Shirk says, alas, as the old stick-and-carrot machinery continues to corrupt the system, the politicians and bureaucrats become only more committed to total destruction both at home and abroad. Now let's cut to the chase, though. How can we liberate ourselves from dystopia? And he goes into some detail here. He says the first step to liberating ourselves from certain dystopia is to understand and accept that the government is always lying. It does not consider telling the truth a civic or moral duty. Rather, it believes in disseminating narratives that are most beneficial to its own grip on power. Those who advance farthest in government are not honest people and their trickle-down dishonesty corrupts everyone around them. In politics and war, the lowest common denominator tends to win out. There is a race to the bottom in which ruthless violence and abject immorality succeed while honor and principle are rejected. As Representative Burchett from Tennessee recently acknowledged, congressional ethics don't exist. So while the corporate-controlled state engages in false narratives and propaganda and the 1984 distortion of language, we have but one duty, says J.B. Shirk. That is to reject all lies. Resistance against illegitimate power begins with one simple thing, and that is the truth. So if you are a truth seeker, my friend, you're already part of the solution. Keep looking after it. Don't share the lies. Don't participate in the lies. And you will make the right kinds of ripples. This is The Brian Hyde Show.